We come this morning in our study of the book of Romans to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Please turn to that passage in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. In the English translation of the Bible that I read from, there are 15 words in this verse. But this is surely one of the most precious 15 words to be found anywhere in the Bible. It is one of the choicest treasures to be found all throughout the scriptures. It is like the pearl of great price, though. Pearls, you know, do not grow on the ground where you can just walk along and easily pick one up. Pearls are found in the depths of the sea, and they grow in the midst of oysters. And oysters are not eager to give up their pearls. And if you're to obtain a pearl, it requires someone to do some serious work to get a hold of that precious treasure. Well, this verse is like this. It is a precious treasure. But there are some difficulties in comprehending all that it says. And so we'll have to be like those men who are willing to dive into the depths and wrestle with the oysters and uh, wrestle with the clams, rather, and break out the oyster this morning. We'll have to labor a bit to get to this text. And so at the beginning, I ask you to please be willing to gird up the loins of your mind and to force yourselves to think so that we might come to the preciousness of this passage. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, as has been said before, Paul's thoughts in this section are very closely connected together. And so if we're to understand verse 4, we must understand the context in which this verse comes to us. So let me ask you again to bear with me to have a short review, not because I believe you forget, but because it's just necessary to have this in the back of our minds before we come to verse 4. You remember Paul in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, is writing about God's relationship to the Jews and to the Gentiles and also about the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles to one another. In chapter 9, he begins by expressing his heart's affection for the Jews and his love for them. Then he speaks about the blessings which God has given to the Jews in verse 4 and 5. And then in verse 6 and following, he deals with this issue in the light of how God has blessed them and promised blessings to them and in the light of how few Jews believe the gospel, how many are hardened and have apostatized. Is it possible that God's word has failed in reference to them? He answers, absolutely not. God's word has not failed. God is dealing with the Jews now as he always has dealt with them, Paul argues, God has always dealt with them on the basis of his purposes according to election. He never has, in fact, nor has he in promise, promised to save every child of Abraham. He has always in the past and he has always promised in the future to deal with them on the basis of his purposes in election. He deals with some objections to election. And then in verse 24 of chapter 10, he introduces this idea. Not only has God chosen from among the Jews, but he has also chosen from among the Gentiles, which is a wonderful conception. It's a new thought in this particular section beginning in chapter 9. God is not only dealing with the Jews on the basis of election, he's also dealing with Gentiles on the basis of election and choosing some of them also. He demonstrates that from the Old Testament scriptures, and he comes to a conclusion in verse 30, what shall we say to these things? Now, his conclusion here is very important for what we're coming to in verse 4. Look at verse 30. What shall we say to these things? This is the conclusion. That the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. The Gentiles didn't care about the law. They were not striving to obey the law. They weren't trying to attain righteousness. But God chose some of them and brought the gospel to them. And though they had no history of care about God's law, in a moment, he brought the gospel to them and they believed and they had the righteousness of the law given to them in Jesus. That's one conclusion. The second conclusion is, he says, that the Jews who for all this period, all these hundreds of years, 
were so meticulous and so careful trying to obey the law and trying to attain unto righteousness, they didn't receive it. They did not receive it. It says in verse 32, Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works, they stumbled at the stone of stumbling. They thought they could actually earn God's righteousness. They thought they could live well enough and do good enough that God would be obligated to forgive them and accept them. They stumbled at Christ. Now, Paul moves from that, and he does in chapter 10. He begins in chapter 10 like he began in chapter 9. He again expresses his concern for the Jews, his love for them, his prayers for them. And he again describes their state. This time he describes their state as a state of apostasy. Look at what he says in verse 2 of chapter 10. Four things. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's the first thing. They were very zealous for God. They thought about God. They studied God's word, the law. They exercised great energy, money, time, effort. They were very zealous for the things of God, but they didn't do it according to truth. They didn't exercise their zeal according to knowledge. The second thing he says about them, verse 3, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. You remember God's righteousness? That term refers to God's own righteousness, his own quality of being absolutely perfect. That very righteousness is demanded by his law. And that very righteousness is given to us in the gospel. It's imputed to us. Well, they were ignorant of that. They had some awareness of God's perfectness in himself, but they had no idea that God required that of them. They could not conceive that God required his perfect righteousness of them. And, and, they, and they certainly did not have any idea of this righteousness being given through Jesus. And therefore, the third thing that he says about them is that they went about to establish their own righteousness. They didn't understand that God expected an absolutely perfect divine righteousness. They thought that their faltering obedience was good enough. And so they went about to establish their own righteousness. And the fourth thing that Paul says about them is they, they refused. They would not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They would not. They would not submit to this. They would not. Now, why would they not? Why were they ignorant? What was the problem? It's stated in verse 4. They were ignorant of this, that Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness for everyone that believes. Now, this is a precious treasure, but it is difficult to grasp. It is difficult to grasp because the Apostle Paul under the, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, chose to use a word which is somewhat ambiguous, the word that is translated end. For Christ is the end of the law. The Greek word that is translated end is a word that can have a few other translations than the English word end. And because there is some ambiguity about what that word means, it is a somewhat difficult passage to understand. There are many interpretations of this passage. There are two interpretations that are very plausible. They are quite true. Both of these interpretations are quite true in terms of being truthful to all the rest of the Bible. They both fit the meaning of the word. They both fit the context. Some people believe that Paul intentionally used an ambiguous word so that the passage would teach us multiple things that may or may not be true. But what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to set before you these two interpretations of this passage that are most plausible. And I have a preference for one, but they are very plausible. They are both quite correct in terms of all the teachings of the Bible, and they both fit this passage. So you're going to have to be like the Bereans. I'm going to try and set these things before you. I'll, I may give you reasons why one is to be preferred above the other, but you'll have to take them home with you and study them and see which is the most appropriate for the context. The first interpretation of this passage is this. Christ is the goal of the law. I've changed the English word end to goal in the phrase. Christ is the goal of the law. The word can be translated goal or terminal point. 
Christ is the terminal point toward which the law points. Christ is the object toward which the law moves. All of the law is to point toward and to lead to Christ. The law takes us to Christ as the law's final destination. And just to try and use some kind of an illustration, if you can imagine the pioneer days where a wagon train leaves St. Louis, Missouri to go to California, say California is the goal, it is the destination, it is the terminal point of that wagon train. Well, so it is with the law. The law's goal, the law's end, the law's final destination is Christ. The whole purpose of the law is to get us to Christ. Paul's own language in Galatians chapter 3 is that the law is a schoolmaster to lead us or to point us or to get us to Christ. Now, how is Christ the goal of the law? How does the law take us to Christ? How does it point us to Christ? How does it focus us to Christ? How does it make Christ its final destination? Well, it does so in at least two ways, and it's important that we appreciate this. In the first place, the types and the shadows of the law lead us to Christ, taking the law in its broadest sense, the types and the shadows of the law lead us to Christ. Now, there are all kinds of types and shadows in the Mosaic law, all sorts of them. People have a great heyday trying to make something special out of the smallest details. But for the purposes of our time this morning, let me just refer you to the most obvious, most basic types and shadows in the Old Testament law. The priesthood, the animals of sacrifice, the temple, the sacrificial worship in general. They were meant to be types, shadows, symbols, which would lead us to Christ. Now, what did those things teach us? Well, three things they taught us. Number one, they taught us that God could only be approached in a certain way. They taught us that men were not free to come to God in any way they wanted to, which is a very important lesson to be learned in this day. Everybody in America seems to be getting religious. Very few are thinking about God's way of approaching him. But the Old Testament types and shadows taught clearly there was only one way to come to God. It was prescribed. Men were not free to follow their religious bents and feelings and convictions. There was one way to come to God. A second thing that those types and shadows taught was that there must be a mediator between God and men. The priesthood taught that very specifically. Men could not just saunter into God's presence. Men did not have the right to enter into God's presence. There had to be a mediator. If the types and shadows taught nothing else, they taught that most clearly. You could not go to God by yourself. There had to be someone to stand between you and God and win your entrance to God. And the third thing that the types and shadows taught... The third thing that they taught, and my notes are here gone at this point. Here we go. The third thing that they taught is that there was the need for a blood atonement if men were to come before God. Sins had to be covered. Blood had to be shed. Wrath had to be absorbed. Sin must be forgiven by a blood atonement. Now, those were all taught in shite types and shadows and symbols. All these types and all these shadows which taught these things which I've just mentioned were designed to lead to Christ. They prepared the way for Jesus' statement that no man comes to the Father but by me. They taught there was only one way to come to God and he prescribed it. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and says, there is no other way to the Father but by me, he was teaching the fulfillment of what those types and shadows pointed to. Those types and shadows pointed to the fact that Jesus was the only mediator between God and man. They taught that there needed to be one. Jesus fulfilled them by saying he was the only mediator between God and man. No man can come to God on his own. There must be a mediator. Christ Jesus is that mediator. 
He is the one that represents us. He is the one that sympathizes with us. He is the one that intercedes us. He is the one that wins our admission into God. And these types and shadows in the third place pointed to the fact that Jesus was the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world, that Jesus' blood was to be that blood of atonement that would make covering and provide forgiveness for the sins of all that would come to God through him. So this is a very simplified and fast statement, but the first point is that the types and shadows were all designed to point to and to instruct about Christ. They were all designed to make the people of the Old Testament know that they needed something that wasn't yet revealed to them. And when Christ came and the apostles wrote about the interpretation of Christ's coming, it was made clear that he was the very thing that all those types and shadows were pointing towards. But it's not only that the types and shadows bring us to the goal of Christ. It is also that the commandments and penalties, the commandments and penalties point us to Christ. The commandments and penalties are intended to make us see our need of Christ. Why did God give us the commandments, the ethical commandments, and the penalties? Why did God do that? Why did he tell us that it was wrong to lie and that liars should be put to death? Why did he tell us that it was wrong to be sexually impure and that those who were sexually impure should be stoned to death? Why did God put those commandments and those penalties in the law? Well, again, for three reasons. Number one, he did that simply so men would know what was right and wrong. Though men were made in his image and though the remnants of the law were yet in the heart, Men were going farther and farther into perversity. And God gave his law because of transgressions. God gave his law to teach people what was right and wrong. The second reason is he gave his law in terms of commandments and penalties so that individual people would know their own personal sin, so that individual people would know something more than just right and wrong in the abstract, but they would know something of their own personal sin. Galatians 3.18 says that the law was not given to help us attain the promise, but it was given because of our transgressions. It was given to demonstrate and illustrate to us as individuals that we were an offense to God. And the third reason that the commandments and the penalties were given is that they were given so that we would see our need of a Savior. The penalties that are attached to those commandments, death, 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 you didn't go away if you had a keen awareness of what those commandments and penalties were saying. You didn't go away saying, well, this is a small problem. You went away saying, this is a desperate situation. I have broken this law. I am worthy of death. I desperately need some intervention of God's grace to save me. I need a savior is the point that one is to come to on the, as, a, as the third reason for giving these commandments and penalties. Christ is the end or the goal of the law in terms of the commandments and penalties. It should be obvious how this works. God gives his law. God gives his commandment, thou shalt not kill. And with that commandment, he teaches us that we are not to commit the physical act of murder. And he also teaches us that we are not allowed to even entertain angry thoughts. That's the commandment, thou shalt not kill. No physical murder, no thoughts of anger. The commandment comes with a penalty. You do this, you die the death of stoning. In the New Testament, it comes with a penalty. Jesus says, you do this, you're in danger of the hell of fire. Here's the commandment. Here's its interpretation. Here's the penalty. Well, when somebody begins to come under the conviction of the truth of that, what happens? They desperately sense they need help. Now, in the Old Testament, that drove them to the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, that drove them to, to ask the question, what means has God provided for my forgiveness? And the means that God provided was types and shadows. And so they engaged in types and shadows, not that the types and shadows saved them, but the types and shadows were the means that God had ordained for them to express their faith, a faith that, had a, that was somewhat blurry in its object, but nonetheless a real faith. And so when the godly Jew, or when the Jew rather, the serious Jew of the Old Covenant, 
began to sense what the law required and began to sense what its penalty was, began to feel a desperate sense of the need for pardon, he looked to the provision of types and shadows that God had made and engaged in those types and shadows. In the New Covenant, what happens? Someone comes to that same place where they know the law, they know what's right and wrong, they know their own personal sin, they come to grips with the penalty of that law. And they're desperately afraid of the penalty of that law. And they cry out in their soul and they begin to seek God for forgiveness. The means of forgiveness is not to go to the types and shadows any longer. It's to go to the real substance. It's to go to Jesus. Jesus is the goal of the commandments and the penalties. The commandments and the penalties are not given with this end in mind. They are not given to bring us to the end of sorrow and shame and bondage and fear and desperation. The commandments and penalties are given to take us to this destination, to take us to Jesus, to take us far beyond fear and shame and guilt and desperation, to take us through that to Jesus. Well, in these senses, then, it is right to say that Jesus, that Christ, is the end of the law. Now, the Jews miss this. Now, again, I don't mean that in the absolute sense, but in the way that Paul is making his argument here in Romans chapter 10. The Jews that he is referring to in Romans chapter 9 and 10 missed the whole point of the law. They were meticulous to obey the law. They devoted themselves to study and thought and meditation on the law. But they missed the whole purpose. They missed the whole goal of the law. They did not understand that the great object of the law was to bring them to Christ. They thought the goal of the law was to bring them to a place of personal merit. They thought the law had been given as a list of rules and that if they would keep those rules, they would have God's favor. They would earn it. They would deserve it. They thought that was the point of the law. That was the goal of the law, to bring them to a place of personal merit before God. They missed the whole point. And you take this idea back into the context of Romans chapter 10. They were ignorant. They were very zealous for God, but it was a zeal that was not according to truth. They were ignorant of these basic things. They were ignorant that Christ was the goal of the law. They thought establishing their own righteousness was the goal of the law. Well, that's the first interpretation. So let's leave that now and go to the second interpretation. The second interpretation is this. Christ is the termination of the law as a means of attaining righteousness. Christ is the termination of the law as a means of attaining righteousness. Now, do you still have your diver's suit on and you're still willing to plunge into the depths and find that, that oyster and wrestle it down and take out its pearl? This will get a little bit more mentally demanding than the first. Christ is the termination of the law as a means of righteousness. The most common sense of the word that is translated end is the idea of termination. The idea would then be that Christ is the termination of the law unto righteousness. Now look at your English texts and underscore the, the word unto righteousness. The passage does not say that Jesus is the termination of the law. It does not say that Jesus is the termination of the law in any kind of absolute sense. It says that he is the termination of the law unto righteousness. It does not say that Jesus is the termination of the law as a rule of life. It does not say that Jesus is the termination of the law in terms of a standard of judgment. It says that he is the termination of the law unto righteousness. He is the termination of the law as a means of attaining righteousness. Again, we must understand the context of verse 4 in order to appreciate what this word is saying. Paul has said that the Jews were trying to establish their own righteousness. They thought that God had given them the law as a set of rules. Do these rules and you'll get to heaven. Don't do these rules and you'll fail. Look again at chapter 9 and verse 31. 
Israel, following after a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by works. In chapter 10, verse 3, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they would not submit to the righteousness of God. They very consciously thought that the purpose of the law was to give them a ladder to get to God. If they would keep those rules and keep those laws, they would obligate God to bless them. That's what they thought about the law. They believed that. And so they were going about to establish their obedience to the law and to give God reason to be obligated to show them blessing and to show them favor. Now, why did they believe this? The Jews were not stupid. The Jews had reasons for believing this. Why did they believe that the law was given to them as a means to earn their way to heaven? Why did they believe that? You might be asking yourself, didn't God really give the law for that reason? No, he didn't give the law for that reason. But why did they believe that? Well, follow with me through some points of thinking, four points of thinking, all right? Follow with me. Why did they believe that? Think carefully. There's a lot of poor thinking about this matter of the law. It may seem all, only academic to you, but it leads to many, many problems in the church of God and in Christian ethics. And certainly it leads to problems in the area of salvation. Why do they think that? Well, number one, consider this. The law does demand obedience. Absolutely. The law comes and it demands that you obey it. It demands that you do what it tells you to do, and it demands that you not do what it tells you not to do. It demands obedience. The second thing that's true about the law is that the law does promise life if you obey it, and it does threaten death if you disobey it. It demands you obey it. Number two, it promises that if the law is obeyed, you'll have life. And it promises also that if you disobey the law, you'll have death. The fourth thing is that the Jews took these facts and concluded that they were able, that they were quite able to keep the commandments. They concluded that God had given the law just so they would know how to please him, just so they would earn their own righteousness and that he would be obligated to bring them into heaven. They sincerely believed this because the law did demand obedience, because the law did promise life if you obeyed, and because the law did promise death if you disobeyed. They concluded, therefore, we can obey this law. We must obey this law. We will do it consciously in order to earn God's favor. They were going about to establish their own righteousness because the law demanded righteousness, because the law promised life to those who would obey it, and the law threatened death to those who would disobey it. Now, the question is, were they right in that conclusion? The first three things are right. The, God, the law did demand obedience, it did promise life, and it did threaten death. Was their conclusion correct? Was their conclusion correct that the purpose of the law was to give you this way to earn God's favor? No, that wasn't a correct conclusion. God's purpose in giving the law, as we've already seen, was to lead to Christ. God's purpose in giving the law was to pre-shadow things about Christ, and God's purpose in giving the law was to teach what was right and wrong, to convince men of their sin, to make them see that they need a Savior, precisely the opposite of what the Jews concluded. The Jews concluded, we've got this law, we've got ability, we'll keep it, and we'll merit God's favor. God's purpose was to show this is my law, this is what I demand, these are the threats and promises. You can't keep it. You need a Savior. His purpose was to lead them away from their own attempts to obey that law, to make them see they could not succeed in doing that. His purpose was to lead them away from self-righteousness, to lead them to desperation, to lead them to Christ. That was their purpose. And if I may use a homely illustration, again, if you can transpose yourself back to pioneer days, you've got this uh, person who needs to get five wagon loads of farm equipment from 
St. Louis, Missouri to California. He wants to hire some teamster to take his, uh, these five wagons out to California. He can only find one person, and this person is so self-assured, basically ignorant, doesn't know the way to get to California. But he's completely confident that he knows the way, completely confident that he by himself with his animals can get those five wagons out there. You know that it's not possible for him to do so. So you design a way to prove to him that it's not possible. You give him a map with very careful instructions on that map. The map teaches him exactly how to get to California. But the map is truthful. It also teaches how hard it is to ford these huge rivers and how difficult it is to get through those mountain passes. Now, the fact is that if, if he could do that, it would get him to California. But the fact also is it's impossible for him to do that. Now, you've given him the map to, got, to make the guy see that he's not competent, to make the guy see what the proper way is, and you've given it to make him see he needs to get help. He cannot do it. He cannot get from here to there because it's such a difficult task. Your purpose is to show him his need so they'll hire other people and follow the right direction. But he takes your map and he says, this is great. This is the way. I'll do it. You said this is the way. You said if I follow this way, I'll get to California. Well, that's true, right? Simply the problem is if he does it, he'll fail because that wasn't the purpose of you giving him the map. Well, it's like God's law. It's true. You keep it, you'll live. That's true. The problem is you try to do that and you'll fail. It's impossible to keep that law. It's impossible to keep all the law all the time with all the heart. It's impossible. God didn't give us that law with those threats and promises in order to actually make us think that we could keep it and thus get to heaven. He gave us that law to tell us what's right and wrong and to demonstrate to us we need help. We need a savior. Well, what happened to these Jews? They didn't, they didn't get the right purpose for the law. They really believed that the purpose of the law was that God gave them this set of rules, and if they kept it, they'd get to heaven. What was the result of their having that idea? Well, they gave themselves to the task of establishing their own obedience to the law. Some of them gave themselves so strenuously and so zealously, they became arrogant they became quite convinced that they were doing what God wanted them to do. They became quite smug in believing that they were better than the Gentiles and even better than their fellow Jews. They became, became quite confident that they had succeeded in keeping God's law well enough to get them into heaven. Paul is talking about them in this passage. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They went about establishing their own righteousness and they would not submit to the righteousness of God. But there were others. There were others who tried to take God's law as a means of earning God's favor. And they became filled with doubt. And they became filled with fear because they became very conscious of failure. They became very conscious that they could not obey this law. Some began to understand that the law required far more than they could ever perform. Some began to realize that all their attempts to obey God's law and that all their righteousness was, as Isaiah said, as filthy rags. Some began to see that they had done so many wrong things in their lifetime that even if from that moment in time they began to obey everything perfectly, that they had a whole record of the past that would damn them in the last day. They began to realize that when they stood before God's judgment, even if from this point of seriousness onward, that they could obey everything perfectly, that the past would damn them because it would not stand before the scrutiny of the righteousness of the law in the day of judgment. Some of those people who were so confident that they could obey the law and please God and earn God's favor and thought so much on the promises of life came to a place where they could only hear the threatenings and they could only hear the curse because they knew that they had not obeyed God enough to gain the blessing and had failed God. And only the curses of the law were relevant to them. Some of them realized that they desperately needed a savior. Some of them realized that they needed the righteousness of God, which was far more perfect than the righteousness which they could produce. Some of them 
were the objects of God's blessing. God came to some of them. God revealed his son to them. God revealed the gospel to him. And Paul says that in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God from faith unto faith. God came to some of them and opened up the passage that we've looked at so often in chapter 3 of Romans, verses 19 through 22. God came to them and made them to know that there was a righteousness revealed in the gospel, the righteousness of God that was apart from their obedience to the law and that was given to everyone that believed in Jesus. And some of them who once thought that the law was given as a means to gaining God's favor realized that it could never be that to them. Some of them believed in Jesus and received the righteousness of God through faith in him. The Apostle Paul was one of those people. The Apostle Paul was one of those who believed that the law had been given as a way for him to earn God's favor. But he came to a place where he realized that he could not even meet the most basic demands of that law, and it killed him, and it made him long and despair for salvation. And God brought him to Jesus. And Paul lived the rest of his days not seeking a righteousness of his own, not interested like these Jews in Romans 10 to establish their own righteousness, not interested in that, but interested only in obtaining that righteousness which is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to the passage in Romans chapter 10. And the point of the passage is that while they had once seen the purpose and seen the goal of the law to lead them to their own righteousness, Christ had terminated the law for that purpose. Christ had ended the law unto righteousness. Christ had ended the law having any influence upon the believer in attaining the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God was given to them through faith in Jesus. The law was no longer looked at as a means of attaining the righteousness of God. The law did demand, did demand obedience. The law did make these promises and these threats. But the ones who believed came to the point of realizing they could not obey this law and they obtain that righteousness through the Lord Jesus. The law as a means of attaining righteousness was ended. It was terminated for everyone who believes. It's not terminated for others. There are others that labor under those demands again and again and again, but it is terminated, it is ended as a means of attaining righteousness to all those that believe. Now, let me try to take the time that is left to us and, in, and bring three practical observations to you. The first is that God's law continues as a rule of life for those who believe in Jesus. Whichever of these two interpretations you take, whether you think of Christ as the end of the law in terms of its goal, or whether you think of Christ as the termination of the law as a means of attaining unto righteousness, whichever way you understand that, the law being ended in the one case or fulfilled in the other, in either way, God's law continues as a rule of life for those who believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, this passage has frequently been grossly misunderstood. And it's very important that we not allow ourselves to even entertain that misunderstanding. Some people have taught that once a person becomes a Christian, he is no longer obligated to obey God's law. He is not obligated to obey God's law as a matter of duty. Some teach that he, this person who has become a Christian, is free of the constraints and demands of the law and is free to serve God in whatever way sincere love dictates. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that, but I'm not going to go into it now. You, you understand the position that the person who becomes a Christian is free from the obligations and the demands and the duty of obeying law. He is freed from those constraints and now is constrained only by the burning passion of sincere love in the soul. And sincere love for God will cut a course that pleases God 
without reference to law. That's not right. This passage does not say that Christ is the end of the law. The passage says he is the end of the law unto righteousness. He is the end of the law as a means of attaining righteousness, but not that the law is ended. Let me try to use the illustration that the Apostle Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. He says that the law is, is like a schoolmaster that is to lead us to Christ, like a tutor that is to lead us to Christ. Now think with me for a moment of, a, of an illustration using a tutor. It's a rather silly illustration. Don't go off on all the odd things about the illustration, but try to see the point of the illustration. Here you've got this father who's got 10 children, and he desires, commands, that they all learn to read because he wants them to read to him. So he hires a tutor. And this tutor is commissioned to teach those children to read. Now this tutor uses rather harsh methods. The tutor is supposed to teach them vocabulary, supposed to teach them the ABCs, supposed to teach them syntax, and so forth. And the tutor comes with this great book of vocabulary and syntax and so forth and lays it before them the first day says, you learn this by tomorrow. You learn this by tomorrow and get ice cream cones. You don't learn this by tomorrow and I'll wrap your knuckles with the, with the ruler. Well, day after day after day, this goes on, failure after failure, wrapping the knuckles, wrapping the knuckles, wrapping the knuckles. Eventually, through these hard lessons, the kids get serious, the kids seek help, and they learn to read. Now, the tutor says to the kids finally, my task is accomplished. You have learned the ABCs, you've learned your vocabulary, you've learned the syntax, you're able to read. My task is terminated. I am terminated. I am gone. You no longer need a tutor. Now, what do you think happens at that point to the father's determination that they read? The tutor's gone. The harsh methods are gone. But the father's desire and the father's commandment that they read to him abides. The law is like that. Now, I'm aware of the ways that that illustration can be misused. Don't, don't do it. The point that I want to make is that the law requires things which God requires. The law uses harsh penalties, stiff demands. It's inflexible. It's a tutor that is rigid in displaying Christ in the types and shadows and making us see the needs of Christ in the commandments and the penalties. But once the tutor has done its job, it's gone. It's terminated. But the commandments are not gone. The determination, the requirement of the father is not gone. The tutor's gone. The harsh methods are gone. The law as an economy, the law as a mosaic covenant is gone. The old covenant is passed away. The rules and the harshness is gone to the believer. But the requirements of God are not gone. They were to bring you. The tutor was to bring you to Christ and to bring you to obedience to those commandments. Now, this is simply an illustration. You might say, well, Pastor Fish, you can dream up an illustration to illustrate anything. You might be illustrating an error to us. I'd like you to trace back very briefly through some of the places where Paul refers to this concept of law in the book of Romans. And you'll see, I believe, that this illustration is exactly correct according to the scriptures. The law has ended in a certain sense, but not in terms of a course of life for the believers to follow. Please turn back in the book of Romans now to several passages. First look in chapter 3, verse 19. Romans chapter 3. You're very familiar with this. Those of you who have been here a while are very familiar with this passage. Paul says in verses 19 through 20, in essence, he says that at the day of judgment that everyone is going to stand before God's law and the law is going to be the standard for judgment and in that day every man's mouth will be stopped by the law. Every man will be declared guilty before God's law. And then in verse 21 and 22, Paul says that now apart from the law, apart from our obedience to the law, this righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all of them that believe. And then there's more explanation. If you do not have this righteousness of God in the day of judgment, the law will damn everyone. 
But you can obtain this righteousness, Paul says, not by your own obedience, but through Jesus, by faith in Christ. Now, you might think, as some do think, that if you have this righteousness given to you and you're no longer, you're not going to be judged now on the basis of your own obedience, but on the basis of Jesus' obedience, some would conclude that now it's not a matter of obligation for you to obey God's law. Paul addresses that in verse 31, where he says, Do we then make the law of none effect through faith? He says, God forbid. No, we establish the law. The fact that you are justified by Jesus' obedience and not by your obedience to the law does not throw the law out. It establishes the law. It establishes the law that even the Son of God must obey, let alone you must obey. It establishes the rightness and the applicability of that law. Now look further. Look in chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 14, this wonderful passage. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Look in chapter 7, verse 6. Verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions that were through the law wrought in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we have been discharged from the law, having died to that wherein we were held, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We're not under the law, the text says. Rather, we're under grace. We have been discharged from the law. Now, what is the goal? What is the purpose of being not under the law and being discharged from the law according to these passages? In Romans chapter 6, the effect of not being under the law is that we would be more righteous, that we would not yield our members unto unrighteousness, but unto righteousness. The effect of being discharged from the law in Romans chapter 7 and verse 6 is so that we would serve better, that we would serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Being discharged from the law does not take away ethical duty. Being discharged from the law enhances our ability to obey. But to obey what? To obey what? To obey the dictates of love? To obey general religious impressions? To obey the law? Because look at how Paul proceeds in chapter 7, verse 22. For I delight in the law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. I've been discharged from the law so that I can serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself with the mind indeed serve the law of God. And look in chapter 8, verse 4. That the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us or by us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. What is the effect of this discharge from the law? The effect of this discharge from the law is that I love it. It is that I delight in it, in the inward man. I obey it with my mind. I am now able to fulfill it because I walk in the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What's the conclusion of these verses? Well, the conclusion is there's a certain sense in which we're free from the law. There's a certain sense in which we're not under the law. But whatever that sense is, it does not remove the law from us as a rule of life. Whatever change in relationship we have to God's law, and you may remember we've spent some weeks studying that change of relationship. I'm not concerned to, to identify that at this point, but the, the change of relationship is not that we are no longer obligated to obey the commandments as a rule of life. The change in relationship to the law rather makes us love the law more. It brings us to a place where we're not threatened by the law anymore. We're not continually shaking under its curses and threats and insecurities. We're in a position where we're fully accepted. Now we admire the law. We're not afraid of the law. We love it. We delight in it. We obey it with a new sense, with a new disposition, not in the oldness of the letter, not as a matter of duty merely. But now we obey it because it's written in our hearts and we love it and delight in it and want it. There is a change in our relationship to the law because we believe in Jesus. In a certain sense, the law has come to its termination to those who believe in Jesus, but it is not terminated as a rule of life. It is terminated as a source of fear. 
It is, it is terminated as a means of acquiring righteousness. It is terminated as a source of threat and consternation. But it is not terminated as a rule of life. And those of us who believe in Jesus should be infinitely more zealous than the Jews that Paul is criticizing in our zeal to keep God's law. Because now we love it. Now it's written in our heart. Now it's our delight. Now though we have these, these remains of sin that so shame us with our minds, we are committed to the law of God. The second practical application is this. The law still demands and threatens and judges those who do not believe in Christ. The law still threatens and still demands and still judges those who do not believe in Christ. Look again at chapter 3 and verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for through the law cometh the knowledge of sin. If you sit here this morning and you are not a disciple of Jesus, if you sit here this morning and you've never fled to Jesus to be your Savior, if you sit here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus, never found him worthy of giving up your life to him, if you're in that position, then this verse doesn't apply to you. Jesus is not the end of the law unto righteousness to you. You are still in that place where the law demands perfect obedience and threatens you with the certainty of death if you do not obey. You are still in that position where the law is hammering away at you. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Failure, failure, failure. Insufficient, insufficient, insufficient. So that all the spurts that you make of trying to pray and all the spurts that you make in trying to do good and all the spurts that you make in trying to reform your life, they're all woefully inadequate. They never satisfy God's law. And the law keeps saying inadequate, wrong, failure, inadequate, wrong, failure, insincere, hypocritical, too short-lived, too imperfect. Death, 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 death. And in the day of judgment, though you may say, well, that's not the case, in the day of judgment, Every mouth will be stopped. Nobody will resist the judgments of the law because then you'll be made to know that, in fact, you did not obey the law. You were not perfect before God. It was just, is just, for God to demand your death in eternal hell. There's a tremendous difference between those who believe in Jesus and those who do not in reference to the law. Those who believe in Jesus have found Christ to be the termination of the law as a means of attaining righteousness. It is a termination of the law in terms of the threatening fear that comes along with disobedience. But you who do not believe in Jesus may take no comfort from this passage because the law is not in any way sheathed in reference to you. You must still obey it. Its penalties still hang over your head. Death, eternal death, eternal wrath, will be the portion of everyone who does not perfectly obey this law unless it has been ended for them through faith in the Lord Jesus. And there's a final implication that I would like to make, and that is that this text is the source of greatest security and greatest comfort for all those who believe in Jesus. Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness. Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law for all those who believe. We who believe in Jesus are not required, are not required to try to fulfill the law in order to be accepted by God. We who believe in Jesus are not required to establish our own righteousness, so that we can enter into heaven. We are not under the threatenings of the law any longer. We ought not to mistake the purpose of the law and go back into that mindset where we must do this in order to get to heaven. We are freed from that. The law has ended to us 
as a means of justification. Jesus has kept that law. That righteous obedience has been given to us. We are not required to obey that law as a means of gaining God's approval. Sure, we're required to obey the law, of course. As secure sons in a family are required to do their father's bidding, required to do their father's bidding, but not required to do it so they can get into the family, not required to do it with a sense of threat coming at the same time the requirement comes. That's ended for us. And we must not allow ourselves to go back to that. Our standing with God, our acceptance with God, does not depend on how well we honor father and mother if you're a Christian child. Our standing with God does not depend on how well we keep the rules of the church. Our acceptance with God does not depend on how well we love the brethren. It does not depend on how successful we are in mortifying our sins. Our acceptance with God does not depend on how much we love the brethren and how much we do this and how much we do that. And yet again and again and again, the people of God find themselves in that, practically in that position where they're acting as if the law has not terminated as a means of justification to them. They act as if I don't do this, I don't do this, then I'm on probation. Then God's not going to accept me. Then I might not be his child. Then I am not his child. Then I have to start all over. And some people have this, they might not say it in so many words, but some people have this attitude that my acceptance with God does still depend upon my obedience. Now I've failed him. Now I've sinned against him. If I'm ever to be right with him, I must do these five things to somehow balance the scales and somehow get back on God's right side. That's wrong. That's wrong thinking. That's not gospel thinking. The law has been terminated for us as a means of acquiring righteousness. We ought not. We should not. We must not allow ourselves to depreciate the obedience of Jesus. It is given to us through faith in the gospel. It is ours. Our acceptance is certain. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Christians who disobey should feel ashamed. Christians who disobey should feel stirrings within their souls to please God. But Christians who disobey should not find themselves in that posture of being threatened and in that posture of being bullied by the law and in that posture of doubting grace and doubting God's goodness and backing off. When Christians disobey and when Christians become ashamed and when Christians begin to feel the pressure of God's requirements, they should go to this text and they should say that through faith in the gospel, the obedience of Jesus has been given to me, the law, as a means of acquiring God's favor is ended for me. It is ended to all those who have faith in Jesus. And as only Spurgeon can say, he makes the point for all those who have faith, not strong faith, not mature faith, just plain faith. For all those, weak or strong, mature or immature, all those that have faith in Jesus, the law has ended in the sense that we have described. The threats are over. The insecurity is past. We are accepted in him because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. May God give us much consolation, we who believe in Jesus. And may God be pleased, those who do not believe in Jesus, to sense your insecure place, to sense that you will be damned by God's law, to sense that there is no effort that you can exert that will make you fit for God. You must have the obedience of Jesus given to you. Let us pray together. Our Father, the more we know of the gospel, the more we feel gratitude to you. We thank you, our Father, that you have made Jesus to be a perfect Savior for us. We thank you that he has perfectly obeyed all of your requirements. And it is still amazing to us, as long as many of us have known these truths, it is still amazing to us to think that you have designed to give that obedience to us. We thank you for it.
And the more we know ourselves, and the more we know our inconsistencies, the more certain we are that we need Christ, that we do, even having the Holy Spirit, that we need Him, that we need His righteousness. And we thank you that you have so graciously and fully provided that righteousness for us. We pray that you would help us to revel in the fact that he is the end of the law unto righteousness for us who believe. And we especially pray that though these words have been complex, that you would be pleased to open the minds of, of lost people in this place and cause them pleased to see their inability to please you and make them to see how much they need the obedience of Jesus, that you would give them faith to believe in Christ, that you would give them repentance, that you would be pleased to make them disciples of yourself. We ask you in Christ's name. Amen.